This is Chris. Welcome to episode 224 of X-Labs. And it's a, it's a pretty good day for a few reasons. Uh, first of all, we are done with the Hellfire Gala for now. Second, it's Cable Day. And cable Day is usually a good one. Uh, and third, it's uh, the end of July, and the Phoenix metro area is sitting at about 82 degrees today. And uh, that's pretty nice. And uh, for all of my Phoenician friends who are enjoying this weather, um, you're welcome. I have to assume that this... Uh, Unseasonably cold weather has a lot to do with the fact that this is my first summer with a swimming pool. So, um, you're welcome. But also with the unseasonably cold weather comes, uh, well, flare-up of allergies. So, you know, this, uh, 30 to 40 minute episode will probably take the better part of two plus hours to record with all the times I'm gonna have to stop and start and clear my throat. So, uh, how about we get into it? This is Cable, Volume 4, Number 11 of 12... August 2021 cover date. The story is called Depression. I think the last issue was called Depression as well. Written by Jerry Duggan with art by Phil Noto. Letters VCs Joe Sabino. Designs Tom Muller, head of Exus Hickman. Edits Bisa White Sabolski, cover price $4. Went on sale June 30 of 2021. Now we open with a uh, mostly blank quote page, and uh, it's Cyclops. He uh, suggests that we know what's about to happen. And he's actually going to say this line to Gene a little bit later on during the issue. Now, the story begins at the hatchery, and the five are there, and they're debating whether or not they ought to resurrect Old Man Cable. Now, of course, we all remember that no dupes are allowed, no clones, no duplicates, even different times, different ages, different uh, dimensions. It's a no-no. And, uh, you know, the last thing the five want to do is tick off the helmet bros. And uh, they're talking about Xavier and Magneto, of course though I would have preferred to call them the Buckethead Bros, but uh, that's just me. Now, Hope is advocating for the resurrection, which, you know, that's no surprise. We should expect that due to her familial relationship with the old man. And she basically says, you know, what are they going to do? What's the worst that can happen to the Five if they go through with this? Because the Five are kind of the key to the whole resurrection thing in the first place, so if they break or bend a rule, it's not like they're going to get chucked in the hole for it, right? Well, turns out that this conversation is being overheard by one of the Buckethead bros, Professor X himself, and so he interjects. We, however, shift scenes up to Summerhouse, where Scott, Gene, and Nathan are having, well, the same debate. Now, Cyclops does not want the old man back. We've heard over the course of the past few issues, he just doesn't want it. He wants the kid. Gene, however, is sympathetic to Kid Cable's plea. Then, Sophie Cuckoo enters the room to dump little Nate. She, I guess she doesn't want to be romantically involved with a loser who can't even maintain his own monthly ongoing X-book. I mean, what kind of absolute loser 
would get canceled after only 12 issues. I mean, it's an X-book, for Christ's sakes. Sheesh. Um, now, Sophie actually says that they are breaking up with Cable, so I suppose it's either the royal we or they're back to just being, you know, one of the five in one. Now, once she's gone, uh, the last night of Galador tromps into the house. It's like a old home week here. You'd, you'd almost think that this book was originally meant to run longer than 12 issues, and they're trying to cram as much in as they can. Uh, worth noting that this last night of Galador looks a lot like Rom, uh, with a twist at Darkhawk. Uh, he informs the Summerses that he comes in peace. Double-page spread of roll call and cred our characters include Kid Cable, Esme Cuckoo, Cyclops, Jean Grey, Ma- Rachel Summers, Magic, Hope Summers, Deadpool, and Strife. We jump ahead to Stan Lee's favorite time progression, minutes later, and we are at Arbor Magna. And, um, well, Old Man Cable emerges from a gold ball. That, but that, that's it? <laughs> that's, we, we, he's just back? Um, that feels a little bit anticlimactic. Uh, I thought for sure that Kid Cable was gonna have to, like, fetch him out of the time stream or something, but no, he's, he's just back. Uh, now, as luck would have it, Cerebro backed up the old man right before the extermination miniseries, which, uh, of course, we looked at as the Ex-Lapsedination uh, series of shows available in the archives. So, we've, uh, brought back a dupe. So, I think uh, maybe Scout and Maddie Pryor might have to, uh, get a second look at this point. And I guess, you know, who's to say they won't? Anyway, OMC is back, and Professor X welcomes him. Now, Cable looks around and feels a bit of weird deja vu about being a Krakoa, and I'm not sure if this is a reference to, you know, his having any of the memories of his younger self. He then confirms that his body still has the T.O. virus, which apparently he needs for some reason. Elixir informs him that, yes, he's still infected, so no worries to that end. Now, the old man looks to the kid and tells him, hey, you know, you should have known about what was going to happen here. And Kid Cable's all, yeah, yeah, and then he asks if he knows anything about Strife. And the old man doesn't even bother to answer him, and instead goes over to Hope to give her a hug. Only after that does he fill in his younger self that, yeah, of course he knows where Strife's at. And then he body slides the hell out of there. The kid gets annoyed until moments later he realizes exactly where the old man body slid off to, and so he follows. And, I mean, this uh, timey-wimey stuff is kind of weird, isn't it? Like, memories just pop in and pop out. It's, uh, it's bizarre, and um, I wonder if this means they had to collect, you know, old man Cable's body from Deadpool's uh, pool table. And uh, what about his arm? That arm that was uh, used to send the, the Galadorians to somewhere? I don't know. Let's not worry about that now. And now the Cables, they then arrive at Greymalkin 2. Now this is a cloaked, salvaged vessel that hovers above the Earth. And uh, the old man chats up his new AI, Belle, who looks a lot like, a, like an old World War II pinup girl. I'm not sure if she's a new development or not. Now, as the old man suits up, Belle fills him in on Strife's plan. Now, it turns out... Before Krakoa emerged, Strife had swiped a spellbook from Belasco and was planning on sacrificing mutant babies in order to spark some sort of a demon invasion. So a call back to Inferno. Uh, you know, the, the first Inferno. I, I, maybe we can call it Old Man Inferno, if you will. But then, you know, uh, a snag in Strife's plan. Krakoa happens, and so he had to improvise a little bit. Strife pivoted into trying to insert a cloned version of Cable into Krakoan society, which... I guess kind of explains all the clones that we've been saying? I guess? Maybe? I don't know. 
Uh, the old man informs the kid that he tracked Strife down to a broke-ass backwater dimension, and it's that red-skied place that we've been seeing the old man trudging through during the end bits of pretty much this entire run to this point. He asks the kid for the light of Galador and tells him to head back home and recruit everyone he can to help out with this mission. Kid Cable sees the old war wagon under a sheet and asks if he can use it, and the old man gives him the okay before body sliding away to do some recruiting himself. Next thing we know, the old man is chatting up magic. Now, Ilyana isn't immediately keen on throwing in with him until uh, Cable offers her a marker. Now, this tells her that the mission is important and also that the old man's going to owe her a favor down the line, and so she's down with it. Next up, an info page, and it's the history of the war wagon. It was constructed in 1992. In 2021, there was something called the Summer's War, likely the story that we're currently reading. And I wonder if this is like a callback or a play on the Summer's Rebellion story that I can't remember who was going to tell it. Maybe maybe Kelly and Siegel, maybe it was a... Maybe it was Claremont post-return, but somebody was going to tell the Summer's Rebellion story around the turn of the century. I wonder if this is a, uh, a sort of kind of callback to that. Something happens in 2023 that's redacted, so maybe that's the, uh, the end of this Krakoan era? Maybe? I don't know. 1918, the Tunguska Racing Catastrophe, which is a reference to an actual event, but uh, the date's off. Uh, it was 1908 in Russia. It was an explosion of an asteroid or a comet or something in the sky, and uh, this event has been referenced a bunch of times in comics, including having something to do with the Fantastic Four's origin. It had something to do with uh, Reed's, uh, Reed's rocket ship. Either the fuel or the makeup of it was, was somehow affected by the Tunguska thing. In 2901, it was impounded by the Time Variance Authority. In 1978, the New York City blackout, which, uh, again, is a year off. It was actually 1977, uh, July 13th and 14th, 1977. And we learn here that the blackout was actually caused by an assault on the Bronx by strife. In 2099, the War Wagon 2 debuts, and I'm not sure if this was actually, you know, a 2099 story that was ever told or one that might be told sometime down the line. 2015, Secret Wars, which is uh, said to be more of a Deadpool story, so maybe this was Deadpool's Secret, Secret, Secret Wars, or whatever the hell that was called. I don't know, I, I basically hated this entire year of Marvel, so I probably mentally blocked out most of it. Back to comics, and back to the kid. Uh, he's already recruited Domino, and then he nabs Deadpool. Now, Deadpool still wants to be part of X-Force, and mentions that he, uh, he doesn't even have any guest-starring spots coming up, and uh, he's not wrong. And I think, you know, man, I haven't seen anyone want to be accepted so badly by their peers since, well, me, I guess. Back to the old man. He and Magic arrive in that backwater dimension, and the old man drops Magic off to prepare. She asks him if he has plans on sticking around after this, and he does not reply. Next to Summer House. The kid arrives to recruit his folks. That last night, a Galador asked for permission to use the light of Galador. The kid informs him that, hey, you know, it's currently in use, but you got next. Uh, the team then heads to Hellfire Bay to attempt to recruit the Cuckoos, and Esme Cuckoo slaps little Nate in the face. So we get a lot of face slapping going on this month, isn't it? Um, it's made pretty clear here that Kid Cable plans on heading back to his dystopian future after taking care of Strife in the present, and uh, nobody's all that happy about it, but everyone's kind of reconciled themselves to the fact that uh, that's kind of his plan at this point. Hope and Rachel then join up, and Deadpool starts gabbing a bit, so Gene puts him to sleep. 
It's here that Scott asks Jean if she knows what's about to happen, and she puts her head on his shoulder and acknowledges that, uh, yeah, she has a pretty good idea what's happening next. We scene shift to the backwater hellscape, or wherever the hell it is, and Strife has cloned his five remaining babies. Now, if you remember, there were ten. The kid was able to rescue five, but that doesn't matter because Strife's back up to ten, That you know, that he needs to do the thing. And in fairness, Strife isn't even sure it's going to work. He, he's all like, he's like, well, you know, we need ten, and yeah, this will probably do it. it it's, it's like comically funny, the, just how inept Strife is being presented here. It's really, really cool. Uh, now, the old man plants Acrocoan Gateway Seed to help, you know, the rest of them come over, and then he launches himself into battle. That's where we leave it. To be concluded, I guess. Next episode, we are shifting over to Guardians of the Galaxy for the lead-in to The Last Annihilation. We're going to have the Guardians and Sword. So uh, be there for that. But for now, let's talk about the penultimate issue of Cable. Well, I wish there was more I could say about this issue other than I liked it. Because, I mean, that's really it. Uh, A lot of build-up here for our conclusion. And I I like the way it played out. Um... We're talking about, you know, books that are trudging to cancellation here of late, right? We just had X-Factor closing out with issue 10. Here we have Cable getting ready to close out with issue 12. And we talk a fair amount about uh, Truncation and where X-Factor was not being was not being written, in my opinion, or, you know, from a, an outsider looking in, it wasn't being written to wrap up. You know, this was looked at, and again, this is, Purely projection on my end here, but uh, it feels like it was being written as a long-running ongoing. You know, a lot of stuff cooking in the background, a lot of stuff that would come come back into play months or a year down the line, planting a lot of seeds. Uh, no, you know, no Krakoan pun intended. Very, very Claremontian. Uh, I mean, you've you'd heard the, you'd hear the stories about uh, like Claremont being stumped for what to do on a story. And then he would go to his editor, usually uh, Louise Simonson, who'd be like, okay, well, you mentioned this, you know, 38 issues ago, and we never touched on it. And it's like, bada bing, bada boom, we have our story, right? I feel like this was being, uh, X Factor was being written very much in that way. Whereas Cable feels a little bit more um, organic in that it's ending in 12 issues here. Like, I think there were built-in jump-off points for Cable, and again... I have absolutely no knowledge about what goes on in the comics industry. Just as an outsider looking in, this story feels like it's wrapping up a lot more organically than X-Factor did here. It feels like they were prepared to pull the plug on this one at any given time. Like if Kid Cable's time was always going to be a couple of years, right? And they knew the old man was eventually going to come back. Of course, he's going to have a finite amount of stories that could be told in the time that we're going to allow him to be on the board. And so while there are bits of this that feel like they're being rushed, uh, you know, the last night of Galador showing up, um, a lot of the stuff kind of falling into place rather neatly. Um, part of me thinks that the the old man return was going to be something other than what it was because, boy, talk about an anticlimax, right? It's like we've been building to this concept that there is this old man Cable out there trudging this barren wasteland for 11 issues to this point. So I can't shake the feeling that there was going to be more to it than just like, okay, let's pop him into a gold ball, and uh, and then we've got our, our old man back, and hey, it just so happens that 
as luck would have it, Professor X had a Cerebro backup ready right before Kid Cable killed Old Man Cable. Which, you know, might work if we find out that the old man knew the kid was coming because time stream magic. <laughs> I don't know. When we mess with the time stream, it's, uh, it's both you know frustrating and wildly convenient. So maybe he knew that the kid was coming to kill him because that's the way it was always going to be. And so he had Xavier back him up right then and there. So that is a possibility. I do wonder if this will have any repercussions on the uh, resurrection of dupes or clones, um, or if this is going to be kept, you know, within a small circle of characters here. If uh, if we have the kid ending next issue by going into his dystopian future, then we don't necessarily have a dupe, right? We've got a short-lived dupe. You know, they were together for an issue and a half, uh, the two cables, but if once the dust settles, we're back to just one, I wonder if that maybe doesn't quite set the precedent that we think it may as it pertains to things like Maddie or uh, Gabby. And if it's just the Summers family that knows about this, well, the Summers is the five, Xavier, uh, Deadpool, and Domino, I guess. Uh, if it's just them who know that we had a dupe on the island for a little while, then maybe it stays a secret? I, I don't know, as long as Havoc doesn't find out, I think we're probably okay. But other than that, it, uh, it's a difficult one to analyze, since it is very much a part one of two. We're putting pieces in play here and uh, getting ready to uh, you know, knock the doors off next time. All I can say is that uh, I had a really, really good time with this issue. Um, not only is it gorgeous, because it's, it's Phil Noto, and that is uh, always a good thing, but just such a fun story. It was nice. I can't believe I'm saying it was nice to see Old Man Cable again. Um, I mean, Old Man Cable... I'm a little hot and cold on on Cable as a concept and as a character here. I I came into comics when Cable was like the thing, right? He was uh, and and not not Ben Grimm, but you know just a big thing in the in the Marvel universe here. He was a huge name, one of the uh, most popular characters, and I uh, I don't know. I I thought he was kind of one note back then. Uh, just the you know the big militant guy with the with the weird shaped guns and the cybernetic parts. He was basically proto-image comics, you know? Everything that uh, Rob Liefeld did in Image was like a variation on Cable. So looking back on those old issues uh, that featured Cable, it's like this just feels like, you know, Image Comics Year Zero. And it wasn't uh, wasn't always my favorite thing in the world. Uh, I think it wasn't until a little bit later on where they humanized Cable a bit more. Uh, the Joe Casey run is notable. Uh, Robert Weinberg's run was also notable for kind of bringing him down to earth a bit. Uh, there was also the bachelor party issue of Uncanny, where he and Scott fought the Executioner, which was another one that really uh, really made me take a, take a shine to Cable, maybe for the first time ever. Um, that was another banger of a quiet issue from uh, the master of the quiet issue, Scott Lobdell. So no surprise there that I enjoyed it. I also really enjoyed Cable as uh, the father figure to Hope. I thought that was a really good... Uh, Really good role for him. So um, it was that that was a, a particularly uh, touching panel, seeing him and Hope embrace again. That was very nice, and it really drove home the idea that uh, for the few years that Old Man Cable's been gone, that uh, he's actually been missing. You know, him being gone and replaced with his younger self immediately was just like uh, I don't know. I don't think I felt it very much. Like I said, Cable's not one of my, you know, top five characters or anything, so it was just like, okay, well, this is Cable now. Not a not a huge deal, but it was with him, you know, giving Hope a hug, where it was just like, wow, okay, we were missing this guy. This guy belongs here, 
and now uh, with him here, it feels it feels right. You know, it feels like the way it's supposed to be. It's I don't know, weird feelings, weird feelings all around here. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing how this one uh, this one plays out. Um, I've enjoyed this run outside of the uh, the Exitens issue that was kind of shoehorned into it. This has just been a phenomenal, phenomenal run. A run that was better than it had any right to be. Um, We've all talked about this when they announced that there was going to be a cable book as a, as part of Dawn of X-Wave 2. It was just like, oh, really? <laughs> we have to do this? We need a cable book? And then, boy, Duggan and Noto killed it. Absolutely murdered it. Just a, what a wonderful book. One of the most pleasant surprises of this Hox, Pox, Dox, Rox, Sox, Tox run. Um, and uh, I'm going to miss it. That is for certain, but uh, I think that's all I got to say about this issue here. Um, so let's hop into the mailbag. Now let's start with Damien, who's talking about X-Force number 18. Now Damien says, did I just enjoy another issue of X-Force? Are we sure that I'm not unwell? I particularly love the art. If we're going to do body horror, I'd rather it was scratchy and obscured rather than lovingly rendered. That's a true statement there. Damien continues, My favorite thing about this storyline is the relationship between Quentin and his cuckoo. Essentially, Benjamin Percy is better at anything that isn't political. He could tell a good story, but he keeps doing stuff that doesn't play to his strengths. That's weird. And yeah, you're right. Um, We've read quite a bit of Percy of late, right? Uh, Over the course of these past 200-plus episodes. We've we've covered our fair share of Percy stuff here. And uh, you're 100% right. Um, There are... I hate using the word brilliant um, because the internet has destroyed <laughs> that word, but uh, there are flashes of brilliance in his work. Stories where he isn't focused on, you know, evil evil Russian du jour or some sort of a global political stage are usually very good. Things like this issue, things like the Domino and Colossus relationship, even, you know, stuff like uh, Beast being written as a wicked sociopath. These are things that are, they're good, you know, it's good story bits. And if we could have more of that rather than, you know, Percy telling us which volume of the encyclopedia he just opened up so he can drop a fact on us, or uh, dealing with political intrigue or evil Russians that doesn't go anywhere, um, I feel like both of his books would be far better off. And I mean, that's an interesting study in and of itself. Um... What what a writer's strength is compared to what a writer is turning in. I mean, uh, you know, I give uh, Teeny Howard a lot of guff on the show for Excalibur and X Corp being books that I do not want to read. No matter how we frame those books, they're just not interesting to me. But we've seen, again, I hate using the word brilliance, but we've seen flashes of that in Teeny's work here. The interpersonals. The two-part Warwolf story, um, just little bits of conversation between Rogue and Betsy. Good stuff. Stuff that I would read 20 pages of if they would give it to us, and instead we're dealing with this fantasy crap that just doesn't land for me, and also political stuff that Teeny just doesn't know enough about to write about. Um, you know, the, the UK stuff is just baffling. And, and I mean, I'm not a worldly fellow, and even I can tell that uh, many of the behaviors that we're seeing in Excalibur in particular are, uh, I don't know, misguided or just uh, plain wrong. I don't know. But uh, the insistence on sticking to that kind of story rather than things that uh, suit a writer's strengths is very, very bizarre. 
you know, to give Hickman his due, um, he knows what he's good at, right? It's the, the big picture stuff, the, the, the high concept stuff. It's not usually the interpersonal, so that's not what we get from him. And, uh, you know, we usually get what we expect, right? It's never, it's never a disappointment from that end. It may not be the greatest story that we ever read, but, I mean, we, we kind of come to expect what we're, what we're going to get. And fingers crossed, we get, uh, we get more of the good uh, Ben Percy than the evil Russian du jour Ben Percy. But uh, I guess we will see. <laughs> Thank you so much for writing in on that one, Damien. Next up, we got Meal talking about Way of X number three. Meal says, normally, I quite like Way of X. This issue made me feel icky. This is true. I will go plot by point. I will go plot point by plot point. I find Drunk Nightcrawler really funny. Not Judgment Day funny, but funnier than some other things in the X-Books. I hope that baby Maggie can be a doting older sister to baby Molly, which is my suggested name. The Lower Mercury subplot is interesting. In my opinion, what Legion did to them was essentially a mind rape. Like it was uncomfortable to read, though that was the point. Anyway, I hope this clears the way for Mercury and Surge to get together. Because while I love Loa, I just can't see her staying with Mercury after the way that she reacted to Mercury's innermost secrets. If Way of X turns into an Academy X reunion, I would be so happy. And you're right, this was a very, very creepy scene. I don't think it could have worked with any character other than Legion, right? Uh, Legion is... he's pretty twisted, Right, he's. Uh, we find out that he does this simply to uh, evoke that uh, whatever monster it was that popped out of the coital event. Um, that was, you know, the entire plan for him. It was a very uncomfortable scene, and like you, like you stated, it, it was certainly the point. And while it felt very different from what we usually get in a uh, comic, even in in something like Way of X, which is usually a little bit on the headier side, it still goes, like, right in with the theme of the book. The, you know, the disparity between the individual and the hive mind, right? Um, We have their innermost secrets, the things that they keep to themselves, the things that make them them, suddenly known by one another here. They give up a bit of their individuality, a little bit of their own private mind space, and... um, we can see just how destructive it can be when there is a hive mind, when nothing is hidden, when nothing is unspoken. And I think that is a bit of a commentary on Krakoa and on things like the, the Phalanx hive mind that, uh, threatens, that threatens us during the Powers of X series here, where there, there are no secrets. There are no things kept back. Everything is just in the ether. And like uh, like Pixie put it here, good people with ugly thoughts. Everybody has ugly thoughts. And it's the ugly thoughts that we tend to focus on because they're the ones that uh, that bother us the most. You know, the the nice thoughts are more universal. I, I like to I'd like to believe that most people and and of course mutants in the comics are at their core good people. You know, good, nice, have uh, similar... I mean, of course, there, there are assholes everywhere, but, uh, you know, just have kindness in their heart, right? But there are those secrets, too. There's those dark things, the things that we don't want people to know that we think about. And as much as we try to hide those feelings and emotions... Um, part of that is what makes us us. You know, that's what makes us different from the next person over. And to take that away 
in this most um, intimate of scenes here, uh, a very, very powerful scene. A very powerful scene. Now, uh, Meal continues. My favorite superhero teams go in order from how much I care, one, whichever team has speed on it, <laughs> from Marvel, two, the Jean Grey school kids, three, Academy X, and four, the Robins. Now, that's an interesting little experiment on a poll we can take here. Uh, let's, let's talk about our favorite... Let's focus on the younger teams here, right? The kid teams, since that's what uh, Emil shared with us here. Um, see, if I'm going to rank mine, uh, number one would be, uh, well, it would be a tie. <laughs> um, I, you know, I came into comics in the early 90s, so my New Mutants was uh, Generation X. And to me, none of the other kid books have measured up to, uh, to Generation X here. Um, Generation X was very much of its time. And it was very much of my time. You know, these were my cohorts. These were my peers in age. And, I mean, the 90s were a different time, right? I mean, you could feel like so much of what made the 90s the 90s and what made my teenage years my teenage years in uh, Generation X from music to pop culture to television to movies, it all feels, it just all feels Generation X-y to me. Plus, I mean, I was living back in New York at the time, and every time I read an issue of Generation X, it felt like it was autumn. You know, it felt like it was fall. Uh, it always seemed like, especially when, when Chris Bocciolo was involved, so many leaves, you know, falling from trees on the ground um, just reminded me of home. It just, uh, I, I can't separate uh, Generation X from my youth. And as such, it'll always be, you know, tops in my books. As far as a Marvel young team is concerned, um, I, I would have to, of course, mention the new Teen Titans, the uh, Wolfman-Perez stuff, uh, as a either tied with the with Generation X or as a very, very close second. Um, the new Teen Titans is a phenomenal book. If, uh, if you haven't read it, it gets my highest recommendation. Uh, definitely track track down some uh, from some new Teen Titans and, and give it a look because it's wonderful, wonderful stuff. From there, it's kind of a mishmash of young people teams here. Um, you know, the original New Mutants they do hold a special place in my heart, though I I can't say that I'm nostalgic for it because I wasn't I wasn't there for it. You know, I totally missed out on that first run of New Mutants. Um, and as for the post Morrison um, kid teams. I feel like we were too overwhelmed with characters all at once to where I, I had trouble really focusing on a few to care about. It's just like New X-Men Academy X hits, and it's like, here are, you know, 50 new mutants you need to care about. And it's just like, what? <laughs> it's It was just hard for me to kind of get my bearings here. Coming from, you know, late 80s, early 90s, where you'd pepper in a new mutant every now and again, and when you'd launch a team, they'd be like, Five or six new mutants that you'd you know that you'd learn about and you'd have to pay attention to, but then with Academy X it was just like here is an army of uh, new characters that uh, that you all need to know about. The Jean Grey School was a little bit more controlled um, in that regard, where you know we still got a lot of characters dumped on us at once here, but it uh, wasn't quite as many. It wasn't quite as shocking as. Like, how many teams were there for Academy X? Like, Emma had a team, uh, the New Mutants had their team, Cyclops had a team, the Corsairs or whatever, uh, Iceman had a team. Everybody had a team of, uh, of young mutants gathered around them. It was just way too many. I feel it did so many of them a disservice. Uh, and that's one of Marvel's main problems overall, is just uh, 
rushing to the finish line instead of instead of trying to organically introduce concepts and ideas. It's just like, hey, we had this good idea, so get it done now. No, you know, stop everything and pump into this new direction right away. We'll overwhelm everybody. We'll baffle everybody with all these new characters, all these new status quos. And then when people can't really glom onto it, we'll blame them for it. Anyway, meal continues. Uh, the Nightcrawler Stacy X thing. I love Stacy X now. The thing with the Make More Mutants law is something I don't love. It could be very easily twisted into something that's homophobic and misogynistic, so I'm not a fan. But Prude Nightcrawler is a bit annoying. Mate, in my mind, you're not allowed to judge people for using Trojan condoms while you have screwed your stepsister. Did he really do that? I, I don't remember that at all, but uh, I definitely see it happening. Um, uh, I do like the how the Make More Mutants thing was um, questioned by uh, Kyle over in... Which book was it? Which book was it? Maybe it was X-Factor. It might have been X-Factor, where Kyle uh, had mentioned to uh, Captain America, I believe. Yes, it was uh, Kyle and Captain America talking, because Cap was surprised that Kyle, a human, was living on Krakoa. And he mentioned that it's a little, uh, you know, heteronormative, which, I mean, can you argue that? Not really. If you're going to make more mutants, you got to procreate. So yes, your, your point is very well taken. As for Nightcrawler being something of a prude... I don't know, I kind of appreciated it in the context of this story since he is, he's like, he's a, he's a lost man right now. He is trying to adhere to these laws and uh, even though he's questioning everything, he still has this uh, weird internal responsibility, this intrinsic need to try to do right by what the Quiet Council have put forward here. So, and we talked about like the macro versus the micro where Nightcrawler, I, I believe back in House of X number six or Powers of X number six, whichever one it was where they where they, you know, put the three laws down on paper for the first time, I wanna say it was Nightcrawler who who uh put Make More Mutants forward as a law. I, I think it was him. I think he was the one who suggested it in the first place. Now that said you know, we think about it in the very micro, where it's like, okay, well, we have 15, 20 A-list mutants, right? They're the ones that are going to be seen every single month. And, okay, if one of them gets pregnant, or two of them gets pregnant, that's just a couple new babies. Not a big deal, right? Takes a couple people off the off the playing board for a bit, and they have babies. But there's a quarter of a million mutants on Krakoa. <laughs> so we got to look at it in the macro, where even with the nursery that Stacey X has, um, it seems like not very many babies, right? She says they get about one a week, so let's say 50 a year, with a quarter of a million mutants just uh, having a good old time. It seems like not very many, where there should be more. But at the same time, since they aren't taking care of these babies, there probably shouldn't be more. So Stacy is absolutely right in preaching contraception. Right, it's a uh, it's a sticky subject. Uh, no, no pun intended, of course. Um, <laughs> but that said, I do like Nightcrawler being a little conflicted in this because he's basically going by the book here. You know, he is trying to make more mutants. That's what the uh, that's what the law says, and that's what he is. You know, here to try to do. And also, I mean, I, I mentioned, I think I mentioned during the episode that. Uh, the wife and I got married in the Catholic Church, and we had to go to classes about how not 
to use to use contraception. So uh, it's it's definitely in line with uh, Nightcrawler's faith, which has been an issue, right? He he's a he's a lost man. So I, I think that that worked. Meal continues. And honestly, who thought that an island full of 20-somethings were essentially immortal and were told that it's their civilian duty to bang was ever going to work? Another part of these baby mutants getting abandoned is that so many of these mutants have been abandoned themselves, so it's not surprising that they wouldn't be the best parents. And that is an excellent point. That's an excellent point that I don't know that they've shown much of a light on. So many of these mutants have been abandoned by their caretakers. Uh, So many have been booted out of their homes by their parents for... You know, simply for being different It's, uh, yeah, it's definitely something worth discussing here That maybe they wouldn't be the best parents And that's, of course, not to say it's a one-to-one correlation there, right? I mean, I, I don't want to make any blanket statements about, uh, about how good a parent somebody might be But, I mean, there's a lot of trauma in these mutants' lives And uh, that trauma may be residual And it may result in just uh, maybe not knowing how to show a certain kind of affection And I mean, we are on an immortal island here um, What are responsibilities now? Are there any responsibilities? So, I mean, we're in a culture without any sort of rules Outside of the big three And it's kind of hard to um, It's kind of hard to Put responsibility onto yourself, right? When when no one else is doing it It's it's hard to be that disciplined Even I mean, even if you're not on an immortal island I think a lot of us uh, in the past year have had uh, a new normal foist upon us where many of us are suddenly tasked with uh, making our own schedules, right? And uh, when nobody's there to tell you what to do, it's it's somehow harder to do anything. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, you, you give an inch, you take the mile in as far as uh, assuaging ourselves of uh, certain responsibilities. Now, Mill wraps up with, so until Captain America is a mutant, be mine ex-lapsed. And, uh, Anytime someone mentions a traditional Marvel character as a mutant, I'm always reminded of uh, of an April Fool's. And I'm sure I've shared this with you all uh, at some point. I think it was 1998 or 1999 on, um, I mean, this is the prehistoric internet back in the day. Very, very much a Web 1.0 sort of a situation. But I was on an X-Men website, and they had uh, put forward that Marvel was about to announce that Spider-Man... Was a mutant And he'd be joining an X book And his books would be folded into the X line And um, like I said Prehistoric internet I'd never been April fools On the internet at that point So I'm just like holy cow You know we have uh, we have these Spider-Man books Joining the, uh, the X books And uh, I mean to think about that now It's ridiculous But let's go back to 1997-1998 Where I mean, in order to sell, a lot of books were being kind of uh, tied into the X-Men, right? Uh, and Spider-Man had just come off the Clone Saga, so things had taken a little bit of a dip. So it would stand to reason that they would do something like that to rehabilitate him. And, uh, of course, it was, you know, it was ultimately an April Fool's gag. Uh, but I can, you know, never not think about that when someone mentions a, a traditional Marvel character being retroactively named a uh, mutant but thank you so, so much for writing in, Meal. I always look forward to hearing from you. Next up, we got Jesse, and he's talking about House of X number one revisited. Huh. Jesse starts with, I'm writing to you on July 24th with fireworks going off outside my house. For those of you who do not know, and uh, why would they, <laughs> July 24th in my home state of Utah is known as Pioneer Day. 
It's a state holiday to remember and pay tribute to the Mormon pioneers who trekked across the wilderness after being persecuted and hunted and even murdered to settle in what is now the Salt Lake Valley. This was on July 24, 1847. It's also the two-year anniversary of another people looking for a new homeland after being persecuted, hunted, and even murdered to settle on the new land of Krakoa. On July 24, 2019, we got House of X number one, and I thought it would be fun to go back and revisit it. So with pops and booms outside, I read issue one for the first time in two years. The art and script still stand out as being some of the best storytelling in the industry. It was pretty cryptic as to what Krakoa truly was and what the mutant nation can do now. It doesn't explain the resurrection protocols or the laws of Krakoa. It does show us as a comic-loving fandom that the X-Men have created a new status quo. The book starts with a quote from Xavier, and then a man in a silver Pac-Man helmet greets some pod people with our favorite phrase, followed by some familiar hands planting flowers in places like Westchester, the Moon, Mars, the Savage Land, and Washington, D.C. I'm guessing that the Washington Gate never gets used because the others come up throughout the past two years of storytelling. We get visiting dignitaries from several countries meeting with Magneto and some of the Emma clones. I would like to see a story involving China since they were excited to recognize Krakoa as a nation. We only ever get to see the conflicting countries in our stories. The info pages were new and strange to us. They served a purpose and were there to explain things and not to be a replacement for a lack of art or bad storytelling or to boast the writer's own self-worth. You see the Krakoan language front and center in these pages. Do we even see it used much anymore? I'll have to look. One of the mysteries that still baffles me is with Karima. She was an X-Man at one time. She fought alongside those whom she is helping to exterminate now. She is now the emotionless sentinel who acts like she had never met an X-Man before. I would like a story about this change of heart, or did I miss something years ago? Karima is also listed as having an unknown affiliation on the Orcus Protocol info page. Did we ever get an answer to this? Maybe there's something more. Now, before I go any further into Jesse's missive here, um, I'm, like, uh, weirdly flashed back to uh, the evening of August 30th or 31st, however many days hath August. Uh, It was the last day of August when um, I was playing around with the idea of doing this uh, 12-issue, 12-episode show that we're currently in, you know, 224 episodes of. uh, And I read... House of X number one for the second time. I read it the first time, probably, boy, it came out, as, uh, as Jesse said here, in July. I probably bought it in October because uh, I wasn't planning on doing it. I wasn't planning on buying the Hoxpox stuff. I was just going to buy X-Men. You know, that was going to be my only book. I was going to try to do the thing that uh, healthy and well-adjusted comic fans do and just read something that you're interested in, not try to take on an entire um, label or a brand, right, or a franchise. And, of course, uh, we see how that went. But I had read uh, House of X number one for the first time, probably October of 2019. Didn't care for it because I didn't understand it. And I realized that I had such a long road ahead of me in trying to get, you know, up to date. I didn't know what came before it. I didn't know if there was any lead up to it, if there was any precedent to this new status quo, or if it was just something that was dropped on us. And so I had a lot of questions. So fast forward to the last day of August of 2020, and that's uh, the second time I read it, and probably the first time I read it like in earnest. I had all the other issues that I needed, Um, even, you know, the uncanny stuff that came before it in case I had to, you know, go back to any of that stuff to, uh, 
to get some context, context clues. So I was ready. I was armed. I was prepped, you know. So that was my first time reading it in earnest, and I was so intimidated. Now, it's it's not often for me. I mean, I have uh, thousands of hours of my voice recorded on the Internet right now. And for me to have stage fright is a weird thing. It's an odd sensation. And as I started recording X-Lapsed Episode 1, I felt the butterflies because I thought I was going to do this story such a disservice. And I, and I might have. I mean, uh, that's uh, you guys be the judge of that. But um, I was nervous. <laughs> I was really nervous about getting this wrong and ultimately delivering it wrong. So I had a weird... We had stage fright, and uh, to talk about uh, some of Jesse's points here, the info pages. Um, you know, when they when they were new and when they weren't, as Jesse put it, used as a replacement for art or including a scene or just a writer kind of being up their own butt, um, they were good. They were different for sure. Um, they over-relied on them a little bit, I think. Um but then again, in a lot of these situations here, it was probably the most expedient way to deliver the information that we were given, right? Things like a schematic of an island or a layout of a government or, uh, you know, just a, a, a hierarchy in Orcus. It's probably better to do that in an info page rather than having Karima What's-Her-Face or uh, Dr. Gregor be like, Okay, well, you know, you're third in command and you're fourth in command and you're you're eighth in command on Sundays. You know, it, it's better to do it in a in an info page or an infographic, I suppose. As far as the Krakoan language is concerned, I I still see it like in the double page spread of roll call and cred and in the coming soon page. I don't know if we see it a whole lot more other than that. I, I like you said, I, I I'd have to go back and look. I'm guessing there's probably some of it. It's I mean, it's easy enough to do. Jesse also mentions Karima here and the fact that she was, at one point, on uh, the X-Men. I believe that was during the Mike Carey run, the like the Supernovas era, maybe? Or maybe the Milligan run that came before it. No, I think it's the Mike Carey run where she was officially on the team with like Mystique and Sabretooth, and I think Cable was on the team at that point. It was a, a pretty fun, pretty fun era. That's what introduced the Children of the Vault, I believe. But uh, it is weird seeing her kind of wiped clean here. You know, um, acting just like a an evil kind of cipher, you know, without any sort of personality or emotion. And I don't know if this is something that uh, there was an allusion to in the lead up to this. I don't know if maybe she was reprogrammed or deprogrammed or mind wiped or whatever. And I also don't know if there was any kind of uh, resolution on her having that weird affiliation. So one of those things I'll have to either check on or be advised on or uh, maybe it's still yet to come. Jesse continues, I also missed how Orcus has mining facilities on Mercury, possibly being filled and operated by other Omega Sentinels. Maybe the mutants better put a ring on Saturn if they want to, if they would like that too, before someone else comes along. And yeah, that's pretty interesting because uh, I think Orcus has facilities both on Mercury and Venus at this point, and now Araco is on Mars and Earth is in the middle of that, and I think I, I, that has to be by design. There has to be something coming, at, coming out of that at some point. In the not-too-distant future. Jesse continues, We get the Fantastic Four being all chummy with Scott, which was nice to see. It's not very often we have other heroes being nice to the X-Men. They also dropped that hint of X-Men plus Fantastic Four as well, and I don't think that's over with. And I agree. 
I agree. I don't think we've heard the last of that. I think uh, I think we got a little bit of a bait and switch here with the Franklin never being a mutant thing. I think there's still a shoe yet to drop on that. Uh, Jesse continues, I could have sworn that Xavier was an Omega-level mutant, but on that info page, it shows that Gene and Quentin, they are the only Omega-level telepaths and no other. I couldn't tell you how many times I've heard or read how Xavier is the most powerful telepath on Earth, but he's not listed here. The man who constantly monitors thousands of thoughts at a time is not as powerful as the killable kid? And that's an excellent point, and I don't know that I even noticed him not being part of that uh, page there. So, uh, yeah, that's very interesting, isn't it? Jesse continues, Two years ago I thought to myself, what are they doing? It was so different from the uncanny run that had just ended with so many dead and how dark it was that I couldn't get a grasp on this new direction. Over the following few weeks and issues, I couldn't understand if this was still my X-Men or was this new and how did it impact the rest of the Marvel 616. And yeah, that's basically how I felt, too. Um, Starting it out, it was just like, okay, well, I don't know what we're in the middle of here, but then, you know, my... My comic collecting compulsiveness kind of kicked in It was just like, wait a minute, what does this mean for everything else? How does this fit in? Is What's been removed? What's been added? It was a, a hectic time in the, uh, in the show As anybody who uh, may have listened to the first episode or the first collected edition will uh, be able to attest to I was uh, rather precious about, um, about my, uh, you know, my, canon, my canonical 616 there uh, Jesse continues Now with so many answers, I'm comfortable with where the X-Men are. They look more like villains, or should I say maybe the upper class, than ever before, but we all know that the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Will we get answers to so many other mysteries before that inevitable fall? Well, with that, Jubilee is still having a blast in my neighbor's front yard, and I might as well go join them. Happy 24th, and I'll see ya. Now, talk about an awesome email there. Uh, That is so cool to revisit some of the older stuff here, because, uh... I mean, how would we how would we receive it now? Um, not something I'd even thought about. Uh, you know, we do have we don't have all the answers yet, right? We do have more. We do know more than we did back then, certainly. But uh, I wonder how uh, how we would receive it going back to uh, revisit the the seminal beats of uh, the Hox Pox Docs run. But thank you so so much for uh, writing in and uh, giving us that wonderful food for thought here. How. How would we receive this, you know, knowing what we know now? It's, a, it's an interesting question. If anybody else would like to engage in uh, a little trip down memory lane and let us know, I would love to hear your thoughts. Now, speaking of love to hear your thoughts here, we're going to do something new. We're going into the voicemail box here. Of course, uh, we do have the voicemail hotline here, 623-396-JERK. And uh, we do have two voicemails. One has been sitting there waiting for quite a while, and another one is very new. I finally figured out how to uh, download these things. So I have the audio, and I'm going to pop them in right here. Hi, this is Troy calling from Canada, and I am indeed an X-Lapsed X-Men fan, followed from about um, 146 to uh, just above issue 200 or so. And of course, of course, I think that is the uh, the golden age. Uh, going back, say to uh, you know uh, a little bit farther than that, you know the burn run uh, through back issues and whatever. But I, I think it's the golden age because, um, well, a because I was following it and I was young then, but also because 
there was just one title, um, and Phoenix was dead, dead, dead for the whole darn time, um, which is – both of those things are amazing things. And, and yes, during that period of time, uh, uh, new, uh, new mutants came around, um, and I don't know if during that, that period of time – uh, or if it was slightly after that X Factor came and, and Jean Grey was revived. I can't exa- don't know exactly when the cr- in the chronology that happened, but uh, I don't know. That was awful as far as I was concerned. Um, and uh, anyway, I uh, just thought I would, you know, leave a message to say that uh, I I am just actually so grateful that I was a fan at that time and that I, I got to understand and value what that time was by going through it. And I don't know, I mean, I feel sorry for folks who, who didn't, who never got to experience X-Men when it was the only game in town. There weren't a million books and when people actually uh, stayed dead and when there was actually some forward evolution and growth that Claremont was allowed to do, uh, you know, until he had to kind of revert back uh, after a while um, down the line after I'd already left. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that was what it was all about, and, I mean, obviously that kind of thing couldn't continue, um, but um, I am, again, super grateful that I got to experience it um, firsthand, issues off the stands at the time. Uh, that was fantastic. Um, we will never see that the like of that again, and glad I got to see it the uh, first time around and the only time around. Thanks. Thank you so much, Troy. I, I love hearing people's origin stories and where they came from as ex-fans here. It's uh, Reggie and I, you'd always used to say it's like the most kind of trite question you can ask is how you got into the hobby. But it's also like the most interesting because uh, it informs so much of what we feel is uh, is comics, right? It informs us to, as to what the language of the X-Men are. You mentioned uh, where you came in and how... I mean, immediately, that's that's your X-Men. And same same with me. When I came in in the early 90s there, it's hard for me to look at any other era as being as pure, right? Despite the fact that a lot of people who were pure X-Men fans got the hell out of there around uh, 1991. To me, that's as pure as it gets. And it's, uh, it's just so cool to hear people's thoughts on their favorite bits of uh, of x lore and x history so thank you so much for calling in troy and uh, please uh, don't be a stranger hey chris this is mark jager i'm not giving you a call because i just had to congratulate you on two thousand days straight days of daily content uh, props to you man it's pretty amazing and the great thing about that is uh we get a daily podcast from you which i've been enjoying because it's pretty darn funny. I enjoy your humor and also the fact that you have such insight into these stories based on your history of reading uh, X-Men and all the related comic books is pretty great. Now, I have to admit, I'm not reading the X-Books right now, but I appreciate that you're doing it for me through these podcasts. But I am reading along with the Essential X-Lapsed in the Marvel Unlimited app, which is... uh which is pretty great because I get to read along and then you then include the mail and such things that are in the original issues, which you can't get in the Marvel Unlimited app, which is uh, pretty great. So 
the fact that you're going through all those X-Men issues from the start and you're reading all the current X-Men means I believe you're going to be reporting daily podcasts for many years to come. So uh, congratulations to you. It's been a pleasure and we look forward to uh, more content. Um, make mine X-Laps and I'll see you. Thank you so much, Mark. That, uh, that means the world to me here. Uh, and it totally makes my day that you're uh, you're following along with the essentials, uh, the essential episodes here. The Marvel Unlimited app is boy, I don't know why I waited so long because it is it is excellent for this sort of a project here. Um, and the uh, I guess the accessibility of these issues, even you know even the weird ones that we've discussed, like the Strange Tales issues, the uh, Journey into Mystery. It's you know stuff that I think. You wouldn't really think about following if you're doing an X-Men run. You know, you would just do 1 through 66 and yada, yada, yada. So being able to do all this extra stuff due to the Marvel Unlimited app is wonderful. And I'm so happy that uh, that folks are enjoying it. And yeah, the letters pages are, oh boy, they're so much fun, aren't they? Um, I don't know that those have ever been covered in audio before. I mean, I know the original 66 have been covered probably many, many times and probably far better than I've done it uh, on uh, on podcasts before. But the letters pages are, I think that might be brand new territory for uh, for comics audio. So um, I'm having a blast being able to share those. And uh, you know, thanks to my sources out there who were able to uh, get me those those letters pages. So thank you guys so much. And of course, thank you so much, Mark, for your kind words and your friendship. It really, really does mean so much to me. Um, I hope you folks enjoyed the uh, the dip into the voicemail here. Hopefully, it'll inspire more folks to uh, to call in and and leave me uh, sweet nothings on the uh, on the airwaves here. But we're not done for today. This is, of course, a Monday episode, and so we have this week in X. So let's take a look at what's going to be on the shelves this Wednesday, as well as what's on that wonderful Marvel Unlimited app today. Let's start with the shelves. Um, Now, the biggie is cable number 12, right? And that's a book that nobody but us cares about, but will almost certainly be spoiled by those who want the clicks on the social media, so be careful. I know I'm going to try to be careful as best I can. Um, We also have Planet Size X-Men number one, the second printing. Even though there were dozens upon dozens of these at every shop I've been to for the past couple of weeks. So uh, I guess we we need a second printing of a book that has dozens of copies at every shop in Phoenix. Um, We got Sword number seven, which is going to tie in with the uh, final or last annihilation with Guardians of the Galaxy. We got Wolverine number 14. We got X-Factor number 10, a second printing, which, okay, I'll give you this one. This one did sell out most places I've been. I've actually never seen a copy of it on the shelves yet. So this one, yeah, this one earned its second printing. It's just unfortunate that it earned it the way it did. Um, Also on shelves, Reign of X Volume 2, the anthology trade. So uh, that'll that'll wind up being a collected X-Lapse somewhere down the line. And... Oddly, we get Giant Size X-Men Tribute to Ween and Cockrum Gallery Edition, which is a hardcover. Um, both versions of Giant Size, so the original Giant Size with the Cockrum art and then the the tribute art as well. And if uh, you're not familiar with that one, I believe every page was drawn by a different artist. So it was still the, uh, the Ween um, script, 
but uh, every page was drawn by a an A-list artist of uh, of today, and and I mean throughout comics history. And you figure, okay, cool. Uh, what what would you expect to pay for that? Oh, maybe ten bucks. Oh, it's a hardcover. Maybe twenty. No, forty five. $45. So if you have an extra 50 bucks burning a hole in your pocket, you can get two of the same story. Maybe there's more stuff, but uh from what I've seen, that's uh that's all that's there. <laughs> so uh hey, do what you do. Uh now next on Unlimited, as I speak, these books are up there. Uh, Sword number 5, The Biggie, Way of X number 1, so I cannot wait to start hearing some more thoughts on Way of X. Uh a wonderful, wonderful book And, uh, boy, the more the more conversation we have about Way of X, the better We have X-Force number 19 And uh, a book we covered here, which wasn't so great uh, Women of Marvel number 1 Another anthology A, uh, boy, a toughie A toughie to get through, a toughie to read about I mean, a toughie to write about, a toughie to talk about I believe that was episode 199 of the show So if, uh you know, free is good for women of Marvel. Um, maybe if you read it for free, you won't have such a such a you know bellyache like I did after after paying like six bucks for it. So, hopefully that's the case, and hopefully you guys enjoy it more than I did. I guess I will uh, be finding out in the coming days. But that, my friends, is where we will leave it for today. Uh, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90sXmen. You could do what Mark and Troy did and give a call to the X-Labs voicemail hotline, 623-396-JERK. Uh, you could find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, now well over 2,000 days of daily content. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90sXmen on Facebook. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, including some uh, Chris and Reggie total packages, uh, which are compilation pieces of our some of our greatest hits over the past five years, celebrating you know five years of our partnership. Right now, uh, there is a twelve-hour Crisis on Infinite Earths uh, total package up there, which, I mean, the joke we would always say is uh, our notes for Crisis on Infinite Earths had more pages than Crisis on Infinite Earths. <laughs> it is quite. The deep dive, and it'll keep your uh, ears occupied for half of an entire day, 12 hours or so. So if that sounds like a good expenditure of time, it's it's there waiting for you, and <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. Anyway, the Chris and Reggie channel is at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You could find it basically anywhere. So it's uh, there waiting for you anytime you need it. Anyway, that's all I've got for you today. And hey, we broke an hour, which... Um, Always makes me want to apologize So, uh, sorry for taking up an entire hour of your day But I I do so very much appreciate it So thank you all so, so much For allowing me to be part of your day And until next time, as always I'll talk to you again real soon See ya